I'm going to be looking at Isaiah 7 uh, this morning. Um, verse 14 is really a classic Christmas text, uh, but we're going to actually look at it in its broader context. So Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 14 is where I'm going to be. Um, you can give you a moment to turn there, and then we'll read it, pray, and we'll, we'll dive in. So Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Pray with me, guys. Lord, right now, we want to humble ourselves before you. God, we're not interested in playing religious games. We're not interested in keeping up with the status quo. God, what we want more than anything is to meet with you. And so, though maybe perhaps some of us are familiar with Christmas, maybe more so than others, you know, what that means in the scriptures and all this, I, I pray that still today, Lord, you'd surprise us with your mercy. You'd give us fresh vistas of your grace and your love. And God, you would speak into the places we need spoken into the most right now. So open our eyes. God, open our ears. Open our hearts. Lord, help us to meet with you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so let me begin this way. I'm aware that um, uh, a lot of us probably recognize the last verse of this text. But on first read through, you know, verses 1 through 14, my guess is most of it uh, was relatively unfamiliar. In fact, you probably don't even yet really know what in the world was going on. Maybe confusing, maybe even a little troubling if you caught some of what was happening there. We recognize verse 14, though, right? We recognize that as a kind of a classic Christmas text. The, the virgin is going to, you know, conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which in Hebrew, many of us know, means God with us. We think of that verse at Christmas time. We have whole songs written about that verse, right? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. I love that song. It's amazing in the minor key. It's good. And rightfully so. It is a Christmas text, but 
you know, because we'll actually see it a little later. Matthew is going to quote uh, this text in, in relation to the conception of Jesus by the Virgin Mary. But here's the thing I'm interested in um, today. I think, as is so often the case, sometimes we know a verse, right? We're familiar with a verse, especially in the Old Testament. We have like our favorite little one-liners here or there, right? But then we don't really know the broader context from which that verse kind of arises. We don't really know what uh, the surrounding story is. And what happens uh, when we kind of decontextualize verses like this is we risk misunderstanding what that verse is all about. Or at, at, at best, we, we, we miss some of the richness the layers of meaning and the biblical revelation. We, we miss some of it. And so today, you know, seeing that I think that's the case with Isaiah 7.14, what I wanted to do is try to, okay, we maybe know it. I want to help us really know it. I want to see it in light of its, its broader biblical context. These are words given, you may have caught it, but these are words given actually to a wayward king in the midst of terrifying times when the kingdom of Judah seems on the brink of collapse as a result ultimately of their own idolatry and unfaithfulness. Okay? And I do think you'll see when we put it back in this story, verse 14 is actually much richer than maybe we first realized. Um, yes, it's a wonderful prophecy, and it's an amazing miracle, and we rejoice that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of it. But seen in its context, I think it's above all else a remarkable sign of God's sovereign and even stubborn grace. And that's kind of what I want to bring out for us this morning. By all accounts, God should be done with us. He should have washed his hands of us. He should have left us. But instead, he makes a promise. He gives a sign. This Christmas child by whom we can know he's not done with us. He's just getting started. He's not washed his hands of us. He's actually going to wash us in his grace. And he's not left us. He's actually Emmanuel, God with us. And so as we make our way through this text, I'm going to organize my thoughts under three headings. First, a shaking heart, verses 1 to 2. Second, a wavering faith, verses 3 to 9. And then third, a stubborn sign, verses 10 to 14. So let's begin with a shaking heart, verses 1 to 2. Um, it's somewhere around the year 735, uh, 735 B.C., all right? And Ahaz has just kind of... Uh, ascended the throne there in Jerusalem because his dad, uh, Jotham, passed away. And he is in the line of David. He's going to uh, take up uh, the reins. He's about 20 years old, which is crazy to think about. He's pretty young. Before a little while now, the foreign nation of Assyria has been kind of an ascending force on the historical scene. All right, they've been just kind of swallowing up smaller nations in their path, expanding the boundaries of their empire, and they're starting to move westward, which means they're starting to move towards Palestine. And the nations around there, especially up in the north, are trying to figure out what do we do about Assyria. And so they are starting to forge alliances in hopes that, hey, we'll be stronger together. All right? And that's precisely what um, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are doing at this point. Remember, Ahaz is down in Jerusalem in Judah. The, the, uh, you know, Israel had split at this point into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And Ahaz is down here, but his boys up in Israel and then Syria are joining together, forming this alliance to try to resist the Assyrians. And they want Ahaz to get in on that as well. Again, we'll be stronger together, but Ahaz has other ideas. He's not interested. He refuses. And so Syria and Israel, not uh, appreciating that one bit, they decide, well, let's go. You know, he's young. He's new to the throne, whatever. Let's, now's our chance to kind of depose him, put in a puppet king who will be more favorable to our proposal, and we can therefore then make the alliance stronger and we stand a better chance. So that's why they're knocking on Judah's door right now coming to attack it. That's what we see in the opening verses of our text. In the days of Ahaz, king of Judah, Rezin, king of, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. All right, and Ahaz is told about this there in verse 2. Syria is in league with Ephraim, which is just another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. 
So he hears, all right, they're joining up and they're coming now against you because you won't join them. How's he going to respond? How does he feel about all of this? Well, that's where we're given this very vivid picture in the latter part of verse 2. When he was told this, we read, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And I wonder if you've ever been in, out in the woods or whatever during a violent storm, right? When you just kind of see the, the wind kind of blowing and how, how the trees are bending and bowing, uh, you know, before the, the force of it. I don't know if you remember, but actually I think it was last year when we were just getting that constant march and onslaught of atmospheric rivers. A lot of them actually came with a lot of wind as well. And I remember even around my neighborhood and probably around yours as well, there were like trees down. My fence got knocked over. You know, fences all over the place were falling. Power was going out. I had to have Paul Walton, our, our you know, resident carpenter, uh, come and, and fix uh, some of the stuff that was broken. And I heard he was busier than ever uh, because so many people stuff. But that's, that's what happens. When the wind is blowing, when, when it's shaking the trees and shaking, you know, the, the fences and things, stuff is just reduced to rubble before it. And that is how Ahaz and his people there in Jerusalem felt as they heard Syria and Israel are coming. Their hearts were shaking. What should he do? Where should he turn for help? How could he stand firm? And... You know, obviously, perhaps, you know, us here this morning, and we've got to kind of insert ourselves into the text a little bit. I mean, maybe you're in a similar space, right? Maybe there is something in your life that's just shaking you to the very foundations. There's wind that's blowing. Okay, yeah, maybe it's different than it was for Ahaz. It ain't two kings coming down looking to kill you, but it's something. And it's terrifying, and it's, and it's threatening, and it makes you feel vulnerable, the wind is howling. You know, what is it? I just thought about some of the things it could be for us, right? So it could be, you know, uh, something with your health where it has you so discouraged. And if you're honest, you don't even want to go to the doctor because you don't want to hear what his analysis is going to be. You don't want to find out why this or that is hurting. You don't want to see the results of that scan. Your heart is shaking. Maybe it's something with your relationships, right? We can all attest to the fact that we live in a fallen world and our relationships are hard. And so maybe the wind that is just howling right now and got your heart shaking is, it has to do with relationships in your life. They're hard. Somebody said this. That person said that. I don't understand. Why would they do this? And you're hurting. Your heart is shaking. Maybe it's the state of your job. I know in Silicon Valley, uh, no one's really safe. Even the tech, if, if anything, especially the tech jobs now are kind of in, in the wash cycle and kind of wondering, man, what is going to happen? And am I really going to, you know, lose my job right before Christmas or after Christmas, right after we buy all these gifts and do all this stuff? And I realize that, oh my goodness, they're reorging again and my, my job could be on the block. And so it feels like, a windstorm, and your heart is shaking. So in one sense, we're all here, I think, with Ahaz in one way or another, and we're asking the question again, what do we do? Where do we go for help? How can we stand firm in the face of the storm? Well, let's move to heading number two, a wavering faith. I want you to see where God goes next with Ahaz. Verses uh, 3 to 4 first, look at this. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I love that, that's awesome. But he sends Isaiah the prophet to him, and it seems his goal, if you noticed, I, I love this, his goal is to get Ahaz to slow down to be quiet, to quote verbatim, be quiet, to consider afresh, you know, who his God is, 
right? And I think, you know, as I saw that, isn't that what we often need, right? When we are in the thick of it, (laughs) when there's a lot of wind and a lot of craziness, what we need most, kind of when our our hearts are shaking like trees in a windstorm, is is this quiet place before God. To, to, to just kind of zip the mouth and stop. And it's counterintuitive, right? Because we're, we're in the noise, and what we naturally think is, man, uh, part of the noise actually isn't just out there, it's in here, right? When we're in a hard situation, we think, man, what do I do? We get into panic mode. We get into just, like, it's go time. I don't have time to stop. I'm trying to fix everything that's wrong. I'm trying to figure out these two kings are coming at me. What do I say? What do I do? How do I make a plan, Right? We're always kind of moving, and so it's counterintuitive that the first thing God tells the prophet to come and say to him is, shh, go tell him, shh, hold up, hold up. I thought of, you know, other passages at this point, because this is a theme that runs all throughout the scriptures, where you see God come in and say, listen, I know your problems seem so big, but stop, be quiet, consider me, I'm bigger. And everything else falls into place. Everything else comes back into its proper size when we see him, right? Whatever it was that seemed so huge before gets a little smaller and God gets a little bit more glorious. So it's this theme we see, and and there are just a few spots I'll dip into just to remind you of this, because maybe this is where you're at even now, and you need a little bit more text on it just to be like, okay, yeah, that's right. This is God's call on me in the midst of the crazy. But in, uh, uh, in Exodus 14, 13 to 14, this classic, amazing line from Moses as the people just got brought out uh, from Egypt there and they're on the banks of the Red Sea and they're looking back and they see Pharaoh and his army barreling down on them and they think, my goodness, you just brought us out here to make a dramatic killing of us. And they're freaking out and Moses exhorts them with these words, fear not, stand firm And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And here comes, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Just quiet down. Hold on. God's got you. God is bigger. They seem big, but do you see the one who's over them? Right? Or I thought of another, just well-loved and and for good reason text in Psalm 46, where near the end, I mean, the the whole thing, if you know Psalm 46, it's talking about everything is shaking, everything's chaotic, and everything's like threatening to kind of slide off into the sea of chaos. It just feels like the foundations are trembling, and and we're told, you know, God comes, he's like, here's what you need to do. Ready? Here's your to-do list for today, if that's where you're at. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I'm over it. I'm under it. I'm in it. Through it. I've got you. It's going to be okay. Your life feels so busy and chaotic sometimes, and in those moments, it's, you feel like you can't possibly take a break, but ironically, those are the moments when you most need to stop. Right? Because we make rash decisions. And we do some silly things. And as we'll see with Ahaz, we make some dumb alliances that end up destroying us, going to the wrong places for help, a quick, you know, relief. We need to stop. We make it worse. We don't make it better until we stop. Consider who our God is. Be, um, Be still and know that I am God. Later in the same book of Isaiah, we're given yet one more beautiful example of this. In Isaiah 30, 15, here's what he says. Thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Did you hear that? You want strength? It starts with getting quiet before God. Starts with getting quiet. So that's what God sends the prophet Isaiah to go to Ahaz and tell him, be quiet. And I just thought, man, don't we need this reminder in the midst of what's, for most of us, probably a crazy Christmas season. 
You kind of get this feeling around this time of year. I mean, especially for me, I got two kids with December birthdays, so it just like piles up. And you're like, man, I don't even know where we're going to keep all these gifts. I don't even know how I'm going to pay for it. How do we schedule all of these events and all this? And you're thinking, man, you're probably similar, right? Like, we got to get the gifts. We got to bake the cookies. We got to, you know, go to Goodwill and get the ugly sweater. We got to, you know, pack the bags because we're leaving tomorrow. Kids, come on. You're like, it's the most wonderful time of the year. No, it's stressful. Stressful. Mommy just wants to get to January or daddy, you know, right? It's hard. The sad reality is we get so busy trying to get everything done that we actually forget what the point of it all is, you know? And the point isn't, you know, the parties. It's not the presents. And it's actually not ultimately about family or friends, although that stuff is all awesome. It can be a great addition. But it's about the God, ultimately, it's about the God who so loved the world that he sent his only son. And that's the ultimate Christmas gift. And we miss him. Sent his son to die for you and for me. Give his life as a ransom for many. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. That's the point of Christmas. We don't want to miss it. So even though it seems counterintuitive, even though it seems impossible, what we need to do sometimes is just stop in our tracks and get quiet before God. But let me go on with this and, and, and show you. It's not, I've already been kind of alluding to it, but let's just be clear. It's not mere quietness that we're after. Right? Like kind of a new age meditation. Empty your mind of any thought. I used to do that thinking that I was going to encounter God or something, you know, back when I was in high school and new age stuff, people were influencing me. And then you just sit there and you empty your mind and it feels good, all right? It's quiet, finally. But that's not what we're going for here, ultimately. Maybe it starts there, but that's a hollow peace if it stays there. God wants us to have a rugged peace, a peace that can withstand the shaking. And what that means is we're not after just quiet for the sake of quiet. We're, we're, we're getting to quiet so we can consider our God. So we can actually kind of lay our eyes on the Holy One of Israel. And remember who he is, what he's said, what he's done, what he's doing. And then we see everything else in view of him. And that's where you get that rugged peace. Where it's not just an empty mind, it's a mind full of the things of God. So with Ahaz, we see this happening. God is going to do this with him, if you will. He, he, he kind of comes to Ahaz there and he rehashes the plot of these two nations coming against him. And he basically says, matter-of-factly, there in verse 7, it will not stand. It shall not come to pass. Like, read my lips, it ain't going to work. All right? And you want to you wanna ask why? Well, how? And, and he goes on, and it's very interesting. This is his logic coming off of that. 4, verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia. You're like, oh, thanks, that's very helpful. I don't understand what he's talking about. Well, it's really interesting, actually, because what he's doing is he's taking what initially seems like such a massive trial, okay? Two nations coming after him, okay? Israel and Syria. And then he slowly reduces it down to the very source of the trouble, all right? So he starts with the, the nation, and then he goes to kind of the capital city, and then he goes to the king or the man who is over that city, but he's getting smaller with it as he goes until you get down to the bottom and you realize it's just two dudes. It's just two dudes, two angry, you know, insecure, whatever, dudes spitting up a lot of foam. And he, he calls them basically, you know, these smoking logs. It's this beautiful image because the idea is it's like a fire about to go out. There's a lot of fury and a lot of smoke, but it's not going to amount to much because it's coming from mere men, and I am God. He's getting them to see God versus man in this. Reminds them, you know, in these moments, I ultimately, not you, Ahaz, I am king over Judah. You remember Isaiah 6, the chapter right before this, he's given a, a vision of God on the throne, and he says, my eyes have seen the king 
the Lord of hosts. And we're just reminded, listen, it ain't you, bro. You're not the king ultimately over Judah. Yahweh is king. And these are mere men coming to threaten my people, my throne. It ain't going to work. You know, Isaiah 2.22, he says this, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And yet, if we're, off, we're honest, right, so often our struggle is with people and what are they thinking and what are they doing? And we, we act as if they can thwart the purposes of God for us, as if somehow they're stronger than what God would mean for good in our lives. And they're not. And that's the storyline of the entire Bible. Everywhere along the way, you know, whether you throw Joseph in prison and all this, well, you just fulfill, whether you crucify Jesus, well, you ultimately end up just fulfilling God's purposes for good for his It's unbelievable. So he reminds us, and he reminds Ahaz, man, those are, those are just two dudes. I'm God. See me. Consider me. I love how verse 9 ends there. It's an amazing verse, and it's worthy of our consideration briefly here. If you're not firm in faith, he says, you will not be firm at all. Did you hear that? If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so Ahaz has a choice. What's he going to do with these uh, kind of, uh, with those opening questions that I, I brought out? Remember, you know, his heart is shaking. What should he do? Where should he turn for help? How can he stand firm? That's what he's got to decide now. The path diverges at this point. Am I going to go with God, King Yahweh, or am I going to go with human saviors and solutions? Which way is it going to be? And then, of course, you know, you got to ask the question for yourself. You know, what about for you? Your heart is shaking. Stuff is going wrong. Path diverges. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? How are you going to stand firm? He says here, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So consider it with me. If it's, and again, you're going to have to fill in your own details, but just to put a little bit of story on it for us, a little bit of, of imagery. I mean, if it is your health, okay, sometimes it's like, man, if I could just get into Stanford and get those specialists, right? This is what your heart, in your heart, if I could just get seen by this or that specialist, then I know I'll be safe. Then my heart will stop shaking and it'll settle. Okay, that'll, that'll f free me because they'll be able to fix me. Or if it's your relationships and you're thinking, you're running through your head. Man, maybe if I just, you know, apologize profusely, come back crawling, you know, on my hands and knees. Maybe if I clean myself up and I, and I fix, then I can fix the relationship. Or maybe I just want to be done with them. I should take vengeance or cut them off. And then my heart will be at peace and the wind will stop. Right? I don't need them anyway. Or if it's your work, you're thinking, gosh, how do I kind of suck up to my boss and, you know, make sure that he's really impressed with me. And so you always slide, like, you know, you slide into the conversation all that you've been doing to make sure that they see how invaluable you are. Or maybe you're worried and so you're like, well, I better also hedge my bets and get my resumes out there because if this happens, then I want to be ready. And again, let me just be clear. I mean, some of this stuff, right, it's appropriate in its place. It's not like it's wrong to go to Stanford or it's wrong to try to help your relationship work out or it's, and to go to great lengths to do that or it's wrong to put resumes out there or something, but it will not, it will not keep you stable at the deepest level in the deepest places. It will not get there. It will not get there. There will come a time where you get sick with something and even a Stanford doctor can't fix it, Right? There will come a time where maybe you work on a relationship and you're willing to do anything, but if they aren't willing... If they don't want to meet you in that, they don't like you for whatever reason, you can't fix it. You can't make it better. There will come a time, perhaps, where man, you get your dream job, and even when you have it, when you hear the little whispers around the office that, oh, a change of guard is coming, and you recognize that it's unstable again. And you can't ever feel like you can rest. Moth and rust and thief can come in if your treasure, if your peace, if your hope are there in this world. Human saviors and solutions. So you don't put your faith there. You put it 
in the Lord. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah puts it positively later in one of my most favorite verses in all of this book, Isaiah 26.3, where he says, um, You, God, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that's just the flip side, the positive spin on if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. But if, you, if, you, if your mind is stayed on him, if you're trusting in him, you will be kept in perfect peace. You will be stable. You will be firm. It's the peace that can weather any storm because it's tethered to the God who is over and under, in and through it, and working for your good. Right? It's the peace that God wants for you and me. And amazingly, it's the peace that God wants for Ahaz as well, but he will reject it. We're still not even into the Christmas text. I'm sorry about that. But hopefully it'll mean more when we get there. He's going to reject it. So now we look at a stubborn sign in verses 10 to 14. Look first at what God says to Ahaz. It's, it's amazing, really. Verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God, he says. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. I just thought, man, that, this is something. Because ultimately God comes to him and says, listen, I know that your faith is struggling. And I know that, you know, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. Therefore, ask of me anything. Ask me for a sign, anything. As, as, as high as heaven, as deep as Sheol, I will do it. I will help you trust me. And when you see the sign, it moves you to deeper faith, and you can be firm and stable, even with these two kings breathing down your neck. Ask me, Ahaz. It's amazing. It's incredible. I'll tell you why it's so incredible. Ahaz, even to this point, it seems, if you read the backstories of 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28, he's already been sliding away from the Lord into idolatry, syncretism, all these other things. He is not a great dude. He's been, you know, faithless almost, it would seem, from the beginning and making compromises all along the way. But then even beyond that, here's the other thing I want you to realize. God doesn't owe him a sign. He's already given him his word. He says in 2 Samuel 7, I will uphold the, the, the throne of, of David. The line of David, the throne of David, man, I will watch over that. I will establish it. I will keep it. This is what he says, verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7. Your house and your kingdom, he's talking to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God has already given his all authoritative word, I will keep the, the, the throne you know, of David. I, in other words, that's the throne that Ahaz is sitting on in case you forgot. So in other words, man, don't worry about these two kings coming at you. I've got you. He already knows Rezin and, and, and Pekah will ultimately fail because God is going to keep the throne of David, the line of David rolling on. He will help it prevail over them. Ahaz doesn't need a sign, and he certainly doesn't deserve it. But the amazing thing is God even still is here ready and willing to give it. But Ahaz continues his faithlessness, if you noticed, verse 12, and it's masked now in a veneer of, of reverence, which makes it even more detestable. Okay, so here's what he does. He's going to push back on God in, in this grace, gracious kind of overture of God in this moment. Ahaz is going to push back on that with this veneer of reverence, and here's what he says, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Oh, God, how dare you? As if, remember when Jesus says something similar in the wilderness to Satan, it's almost like he's saying, you're tempting me almost along the lines of Satan right now, and I won't put you to the test. But if God asked you to do it, I figure you should probably do it. But here's what we see. He's alluding to Deuteronomy 6.16, and he's trying to act holier than God in this moment. Like, I know it's not right to put you to the test. People get in trouble for that all over the scriptures, and he's not wrong. A lot of times, putting God to the test, it, it, when it comes from this, this heart of unbelief, it is, it is not a good thing. 
And God regularly does rebuke. But here's what happens. He's missed the fact that there is a way, it seems, to quote-unquote test the Lord that doesn't indicate presumption or distrust so much as actually, amazingly, the, the, the opposite. There is a testing of, a Lord, of the Lord that is moving away from him in unbelief and sin, but there is also a testing of the Lord that moves towards him, it would seem, in the fight for faith and hope. You might consider Malachi 3.10 as an example where he says, test me, give to the poor, test me and see if I won't then also provide for you. I will be faithful. So there is a test that leans away. That would be like what Ananias and Sapphira were doing that we saw a couple weeks ago in Acts 5. Leaning away. How much can we get away with here and he won't do anything? And then there's a test it would seem that leans towards. It says, I'm struggling with faith. I'm struggling to trust you. Gee, would you please help me believe? Right? I thought of that man uh, in Mark 9, 24 where he cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, give me something to help. Right? Or I thought of perhaps Thomas, where, um, you know, after Jesus had risen and the others saw him and, 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 and he's struggling to trust their testimony. In fact, it's more than struggling. He's like, I won't. Like, unless I see it, unless I put my hands in his, in his scars, I won't believe. It sounds arrogant and all of this, but it's actually amazing. Even still, Jesus is going to come to him. This is John 20, verse 27, and he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He said, is that what you needed to, to trust me more? I mean, it's amazing, but he's willing to move towards in those moments. There are times where we're going to struggle with doubt and fear, and though we know the truth, we, we need God's help. And I do think that God takes into account the heart of the person. And when the heart is genuine, it's not just like, well, I need more sign or else I can keep walking in sin. Or how can, like the Pharisees, I don't know if we could trust you. We need another sign. And they're just trying to get out of responding to what they've already seen. But if our heart is saying, God, we want to trust you. We're struggling. Help us in our unbelief. I think he's happy to come in and, and give us encouragement and assurance in some way. But Ahaz won't do it. He won't ask for it. Why? And that's the question. Why? Well, I'll tell you. It's not because he's worried about sinning. It's not because he's worried about sinning against the Lord, though he's quoting scripture and saying, see, I shouldn't test you. He's not worried about sinning against God. The truth is he doesn't want to ask for a sign because he's already made up his mind about where he's going to turn for help, and it isn't Yahweh. It isn't Yahweh. You could do whatever you want, Yahweh, and I'm not going to turn to you. I've already made up my mind where I'm turning. I'm turning to the king of Assyria, believe it or not. That's his plan. The best chance of deliverance for me against Syria and Israel is to side up with the big boy in town. I'm going to go with the even bigger one. And so he decides he's going to be my deliverer, the king of Assyria, not the king of Israel. I'm going to go for, for this guy here, and he gives him gold and silver, believe it or not, from the temple, trying to win his favor, showing his true cards and who his true God really is in those moments. He even calls himself the king's servant and son. He says, I'm your servant. I'm your son. Here's some money. Come and save me. It's like he is orphaning himself leaving the household of, of the true God for something false. And does he end up the firmer for it? Well, that's what he thinks. That's what he's aiming for. And maybe initially, and this is how sin always works in our, in our, in our false alliances, we go there because they trust immediate, they, they, they um, promise us immediate payoff. Okay, we'll get firm for the moment, but we don't really look past the moment and see how it's going to end. And it never ends well, in fact, you see it with Ahaz. When it's all done, though, the king of Assyria will come, and he will conquer Syria, and he will conquer Israel, and he will momentarily deliver Judah and Ahaz. He will then turn on Judah and oppress him. And so the bottom line, we actually read this in 2 Chronicles 28, 20. The king of Assyria came against him, Ahaz, and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. 
at the end of the day, he didn't strengthen him, he afflicted him. And we see that the very one that Ahaz had hoped in for deliverance becomes his oppressor. So it seems to me, ironically, in all this, it's as if he tests the Lord by not being willing to test the Lord. He puts the Lord to the test by not putting the Lord to the test, by not leaning in on him for help in these moments, asking for a sign to encourage his wavering faith. Uh, When Isaiah responds in verse 13, it's, in my view, it's uh, devastatingly tragic. He says this, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? All I want you to notice is the shift in the possessive, uh, or in the possessive pronouns. Now all of a sudden we're talking about Isaiah saying, hey, Yahweh is my God. But did you notice up earlier in verse 12 it was, he's pleading with Ahaz saying, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ahaz, ask your God and he will show, he will come. But then when he refuses, when he rejects, when he shows his true cards, when he exposes where his allegiance truly lies, it shifts from your God. And Isaiah now talking to him says, well, he ain't your God anymore, I guess, but he is still my God. How long are you going to weary my God? It shifts from Ahaz's to Isaiah's, from yours to Mine, and it signals the deeper spiritual transition that's taken place in Ahaz's heart. Yahweh isn't his God. He's left him. He's left him for something else. And I do wonder, right? I mean, we, again, bringing ourselves into this, we struggle along similar lines, right? Where we may, we may even continue to kind of pretend and play the religious game and makes us feel better to pray or to come to church on Christmas or whatever it is. We kind of genuflect in God's direction, but our hearts are set on something else. Our hope is set on something else. Our faith is attached to something else, some alternate God, some alternate Savior. And I just would say, you know, if that's kind of the motion and that, that's, you know, going on in your heart, if that's the trajectory you're on, beware, because the one, if it's not the true God, the one you hope in for your deliverance will become your oppressor. It's inevitable. It's how it works. Here's what's so amazing, and here's why I say this is a stubborn sign Even after all of this, even after Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, here's what's awesome. God still determines to give it. Even after all this, God still determines to give a sign anyways. It's as if the stubbornness of Ahaz's faithlessness is met by the stubbornness of God's grace. And we know which one's going to win. And so we come to verse 14 now, finally. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He says, Ahaz, you didn't want a sign, but I'm going to give you one anyways, and not just you. I want you to recognize, and this is getting into the Hebrew grammar, but uh, the you here is actually plural now. It shifts from singular, you Ahaz, to you, you all. When he says, man, therefore the Lord himself will give you, you all, us, the house of Judah, the people of God, the people in coming generations. He's going to give us a sign. It's beautiful. It's as if he's saying, Ahaz, I may not be your God anymore, but I will be the God of any who will have me. My arms are open. Why are your arms still crossed? Stop chasing after other gods as if there were such a thing. Come, here is the sign. I will keep my promise. I have established and will protect the throne of David, and I will ultimately, through it, save my people and the world in the end. Here's the sign. Now, of course, I don't have time for this, but there is a sense in the story of Isaiah here where there seems to be uh, some partial fulfillment of this uh, verse in Ahaz's day with the birth of Isaiah's second son. I can't go into all that. What we know ultimately, right, is that the, the, the final, ultimate, climactic fulfillment of this promise comes with the arrival of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. He is the sign 
uh, par excellence. So after relaying the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in Mary, uh, Matthew makes this comment in his gospel. He's kind of talking about the Christmas story and there will come one and she will conceive by the Holy Spirit and all of this. And Matthew says this in verse 22 of chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes our text. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises, the yes and amen of it all. He is the one that's going to come and sit on the throne of David forever. He is the one who will, as the angel Gabriel tells Joseph, save his people, not just from a couple of kings, but from their sins, Matthew 1.21. He is literally God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And here's what I thought was so just amazing for us. Christmas is ultimately God supplying the sign we didn't even care enough to ask for. All right, Christmas is God acing the test we refused in our rebellion to administer. It's sovereign and stubborn grace. It's God coming in love for a people who, who couldn't care less or actually don't even want them. And this is why Jesus' life will take the trajectory that it does. He moves from Bethlehem to Calvary. He moves from, you know, the animal feeding trough to the rugged cross. God would be near us, though we would do everything we could to get him out of our story. Get him out of our lives. Get him out of our way. And here's what's, I did, this is, I'm almost done in case you're worried. This is so awesome. Think, think about this with me. God invites Ahaz to ask a sign from him, right? And he says, man, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. And I just thought, man, Jesus, Emmanuel, the sign God does give us in his stubborn grace that we refuse to even ask him for it in the first place, but it actually does span these two realms, does it not? Jesus comes from the heights of heaven, where he existed from all eternity, the, the Son of God. But laying aside his glory, he descends, and not just to earth, but you could say to the depths of Sheol, to the place of the dead. That's where he's going to go, from the heights of heaven to the depths of the earth for the sake of our sin giving his life on that cross to redeem, to truly deliver us. And then he spans the two realms again. Because he, on the third day, rises up from the place of the dead. And he ascends back to the heights of heaven. Only now he takes human nature with him, as it were. Opening the doors for you and I to come back into relationship with God. The very God we stiff-armed from page one of the Bible. When we said we'd rather have a piece of fruit than you. And we just kept that same fallen logic running all the way through. Seen in Ahaz's story. Seen in our own story. We'll take anything else but you. Anyone else but you. And God says, I am the only one you truly need. So I'm still coming. It's amazing. It gives a sign to people that don't even want him, and it truly does come from the heights of heaven down to the depths of Sheol and goes right back up again, and only now we're taken with him. It's as C.S. Lewis writes in his classic work, Mere Christianity, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Or he goes on in another book, uh, Miracles, and he says this, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. That's why he comes. So, I don't know where you are this morning. 
I don't know whether you are struggling, you know, and I don't know how you would have filled in the gaps as we're talking about, you know, the wind that's howling around you. I know it's not two kings from, you know, Israel and Syria, but it's something. Maybe you feel alone and your heart is trembling. I, I don't know what it is, but I do know this. If you ever wanted a sign that God is with you, that God has not forsaken you, that God is ready to help and ready to forgive and free and save and truly deliver, you already have that sign in Jesus. That's what the baby in the manger is. It's not just some you know, nostalgic little moment for us to sing a little silent night Christmas song or whatever. It is God's sign to you that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Whatever you are facing, whatever you are dealing with, he wants to be right there in the thick of it with you. So just encourage you. I mean, if you are feeling uh, flimsy and precarious and you want to be firm, set your faith on him. And he'll stabilize you in the midst of the storm. Amen? Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Um, God, I, we're just grateful for your stubborn grace <laughs> that you're not like us. So often in our relationships, when people show signs of not wanting to be with us, we just turn a cold shoulder to them. Why would we want to hang out with them anyways? But you come after us still. It's almost like you throw the life preserver out the boat and we would rather keep drowning. So you finally decide that you're going to dive in after us. And even still, we're punching you in the face all along the way as you swim back up to the surface. Finally, when we come up for air and our eyes are open, we see who you really are and how good you are and your faithfulness to us in spite of our faithlessness and your stubborn grace. And so, God, we thank you for that. And we thank you for Christmas. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd be honored by the songs we sing to you now. They may be very familiar, some of them Christmas songs that we could just rattle off in our sleep. But, God, let it truly arise from our hearts this morning. Hearts that are perhaps stilled and no longer trembling like the trees in the wind because they know the God who is over it all is with us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.